Good evening, Hope Church family. It is so wonderful to be back with you. I've taken a couple weeks off from preaching, not off from pastoring, off from preaching, and I'm very excited to be back with you. And it has been wonderful to go through this series. One of the best parts for me is telling people, hey, you should really listen to this series. It's fantastic. And I can say that because I'm not really preaching in it. And so it's not prideful or arrogant but actually telling people to be listening through this series. Um, there's people now all over the world that are watching uh, Hope Church videos. There's other people here locally that are doing it, and there's people that are using it almost as like a uh, college-type class of discipleship. So I hope you're enjoying it, and we're just going to jump right in. If you would, uh, last time I preached on discipleship, we were in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. In fact, hopefully you've set an alarm clock that's still going off twice a day at 9.38 to remind us to pray for the harvest. So I want to read this passage, and then we're just going to jump in. Uh, we're actually going to be spending most of our time this evening in Romans chapter 12. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So I've decided to pray at 9.30 a ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And I have to mention this every time I read this passage. He was talking to his disciples and he's saying, pray that the Lord would send out people. And in chapter 10, they find out they're the answer to the prayer. They are being sent out just like you and myself are being sent out. When we pray for the harvest, it's praying for our own strength and courage to proclaim the good news of the kingdom as Jesus modeled. But that's not where we're going to be tonight. I want to focus really on just one word, this one phrase, because tonight we're going to be talking about emotions. We're going to be talking about our emotions. We're going to be talking about what drives us. Or uh, a couple years ago, there was a big thing going around with find your why. Uh, there was a book out called why? And it was how do we find that drive? How do we find the reason that we do what we do or how do we find our why? And so I want to just focus on this and going back, we see uh, verse 36, speaking of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now next week, we're going to be talking about discipleship in the eyes of Jesus. How do we have eyes like Jesus? And we're going to be spending a lot of time in this passage. But I just want to use this as kind of a launching point for you and for me. Uh, how are you doing putting discipleship into practice? We've now been going through this series, Becoming Disciples, for about a month and a half. We've talked a lot about the, the why we do it. We've been commanded to do it in Matthew 28. It was very straightforward. It's a military command is how it's worded in the Greek. Go and make disciples. There is no opt-out clause. There is no loophole. You go. Go and make disciples. We are all supposed to be in this discipleship process, in this discipleship journey somewhere. Now, we've talked about discipleship. We've had our discipleship chart out and talked about discipleship as helping somebody move one step closer in the relationship with God, whether that means salvation or whether that means they already know the Lord and we're helping them grow in it. 
So we've had all of these different things and we're giving you different tools for your tool belt. So I want you to stop and ask yourself a question. What has changed? What has changed in the last month and a half? Have you engaged in this discipleship process? Has there been uh, rhythms of your life that have now looked differently? If you're a parent, now you are trying to more purposefully be involved in your child's life in a discipleship way that wasn't there before. Or maybe it's with your spouse, or maybe it's with your significant other, maybe it's with a roommate. But what has changed? Has there been change in the last month and a half in how you approach your daily life in view of discipleship and what we've been talking about? Again, we've been commanded to disciple, but what is our why? What is what drives us to do it? Here we see Jesus, and he had compassion. Now, it's a little different because Jesus knew why mankind was created by him. Jesus knew the consequences of not knowing him. Jesus knew how he had designed each and every one of those people as he knows how he's designed you and how he's designed me. He's known the talents and the abilities. He's known the gifts. Jesus knew all of those things. He knew all of those things since before the creation of the world. And he had compassion on them. He was driven by compassion. Compassion involves love. It's that love, it's that compassion that drove Jesus. So everyone has a why. Uh, it, is, it is what drives you to do something. Now sometimes like when we look at work, I've had several jobs where my big drive for doing that job was they pay me to do this and I need money to buy food to live. Or I need money to buy food to feed my family. And I wasn't that emotionally attached to the job. In fact, some of the jobs I didn't care to do at all. But it was available and I needed a job. So that wasn't a big why, but it was a why nonetheless. There are other jobs that you have or that I have, the job I currently hold, that I am very emotionally invested in. Uh, it's a job that I absolutely love doing. Uh, pay has zero to do with it. My wife has told me, Rob, if it meant if you were by yourself and you didn't have a family, you would gladly live in your car and still do what you do. And it's true. I really sincerely love doing what I do. And maybe the same is true for you. It may not be pastoring. It may be whatever job you have. But unfortunately, sometimes we can have our identity so wrapped up in our job that that is what drives us is we protect this job that does not last for eternity. Even as a pastor, I can have my identity so wrapped up in my job that I start to fail at the things that God has given me as my responsibility, such as my marriage, such as being a father. And so sometimes our why, sometimes that drive, although it sounds good in nature, can be actually working against us. It can actually be sin in our life if our identity is too wrapped up in it. And one of the ways that we can gauge uh, what drives us, or what is our why, is our emotional response to it. Uh, the emotions that drive us to do or not to do different things that we have the opportunity to do in our life. Here, Jesus had compassion. It drove him. He knew what these people needed. He knew he was the answer, that it was going to be his body and blood and the empty grave that would allow them to know him, that would allow them to be part of the kingdom. And it, it drove him. And so, therefore, what 
we are driven towards, what we love to do, what stirs up emotion in our life when we evaluate our emotions. Now, we've said, you know, if you want to know what's important to you, look at where you spend your time, where you spend your finances, and what you're emotionally or where you're relationally invested. Tonight, we're just simply talking about your emotions. Where are you emotionally invested? What causes you to demonstrate fear? What causes you to demonstrate anger? What causes you to demonstrate love? What causes you to go through the list of emotions? And, and when we start to examine what things cause us to demonstrate this emotion, it demonstrates to us what's really important to us. It demonstrates to us what we find our identity in, whether good or bad. So if you would turn to Romans chapter 12, and this is where uh, we've used uh, verses 1 and 2 the last time I preached as well. We use those two verses really to define uh, what we call a disciple. Um, so if you would turn to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There again is a lot in this passage. There's a lot in this chapter. So we're going to have to just kind of hit on a couple key points. The first thing that I want to point out, and point one if you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, the first thing I want you to notice is what should drive us. One of the big things that would drive us in this is we first have to grasp gratitude. Grasping gratitude. Uh, we've said that a disciple is a dis uh, follower of Jesus, that the gospel is continually transforming. And that's where we got this from out of this passage. But I want to stop and look for a moment at another passage, another key phrase here. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, meaning people that know Christ, in view of God's mercy. And before he goes on to say that we should be offering everything as a spiritual living sacrifice, he says, in view of God's mercy. In other words, before we make any decisions... Before we make decisions of whether we're going to serve somebody or not, or what we're going to do that day, or how we're going to respond to somebody, we should stop and say, in view of God's mercy. When we stop and think about what God has done for us, what God has done, is doing, and promises he will continue to do for you and myself, in view of God's mercy which should also help us to recognize how horrible we are. That we are sinful human beings desperately in need of God's grace every single day. When we start to comprehend what we actually deserve without God, what our, our thought life, what our actions, what that actually deserves, but because of God, but God who is rich in grace and mercy, that should start to change how we view everything in our life. How often do we stop and make decisions uh, before a big decision we're making in life or even a small decision? How often do we stop in the morning and just sit and meditate in view of God's mercy? 
He goes on to say in that passage, uh, this is your true and proper worship. And another way I like to translate it is, in view of God's mercy, we are giving him everything that is us. We are giving him how he has designed us. We are giving him every aspect of life. It is for him to use as he sees fit. Why? Well, because of in view of God's mercy, this phrase really should mean it's just common sense. When we can even start to comprehend all that God has done for us, it's common sense that he can do with us what he wills. It is common sense that when we meditate on what Jesus has done for us, that there is nothing too great he can ask from us in return. Have you ever stopped to think about that? There is nothing too great after what God has done for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross and in the empty grave. There is nothing too great he can ask in return from us. And it's common sense that we give him everything that we are. And that's because of grasping gratitude. It makes us thankful when we stop and start to view things in view of God's mercy. I've heard several people say, and I'm not sure where it originated from, but he said, the godliest people I know are usually the most thankful people. The godliest people that I know are people who have had to, sometimes very publicly, had to admit that they have a serious sin issue. Even in my own life, that what changed my life besides apart from the salvation, which is of course the biggest and greatest, was coming to a point where I had to realize that I was a sinner. Yes, I realized that in order to come to know Christ, but I lived my life for so long in self-righteousness. I lived my life for so long pointing out how I'm better than everybody else. And then when I had to go around confessing my sin to people and admitting that I actually do mess up a lot, something else happened. I started to realize all these other areas of my life that I thought I had in order were not. And it made me so much more thankful for God's grace in my life. It allowed me to start showing God's grace to people that I would usually be very quick to judge, very quick to tell you how much better I am than them because I don't struggle with their stuff. It changed me. And that's what happens when we view what God did for us. It causes us to be thankful. We start to understand how much we need God's grace in our life and we start to live in what he wants us to do because of our thankful attitude demonstrates itself in our actions back. So we have to grasp gratitude. When we focus on what God has done for us, being involved in discipling those around us, it makes sense because we have experienced God's grace and love, so it should motivate us towards sharing that with others. In view of God's mercy and what he's done for us, for us to not be actively involved in telling other people about Jesus or helping them grow in their relationship with God, that is unbelievably selfish of us. It's unbelievably hindering towards other people's spiritual growth when we hold it in. Let's continue. Verses 3 through 8. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same functions, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. And if it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. These are just one of the really three different passages that give different giftings, different spiritual giftings that God gives those, I believe, upon salvation. So these are some of the listings of gifts, and I'm not going to focus in on each one of those. I want to view the big picture, and that's this. Point number two, everybody has a role in discipleship. Look at what he says right at the beginning. I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Paul's saying, be self-aware. When we can get focused on ourselves, we like to think how good we are, how great we are, how wonderful we are, that we've got it all together, and the things that we don't aren't that big of a deal because we can self-justify them with our own selves. We're very good at that. But be self-aware. In the words of one of my famous favorite theologians, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, know your role and shut your mouth. Know your role that you play in the body of God. Know your, your gifts and your talents and your abilities that God has so graciously given to one of you and shut your mouth. Do what God has gifted you to do. Now, if it's prophesying and preaching, then you're supposed to open up your mouth. But so much, so much of the time we can get caught up on telling everybody else what they're doing wrong. I remember before I had kids and I was actually pretty newly married, sitting in a room with several mothers and they all had the other mothers who weren't in the room, how to raise their kids where it's all figured out. They knew how Sally should be raising her teenage daughter. Most of them didn't have kids over the age of three, but they had Sally all figured out. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. Or guilty, really, I guess. That's what we do all the time. We're always saying this is what that person should do, or that's what that church is doing wrong. No, focus on what God has given you to do and do it excellently. And shut your mouth about all the other stuff that is really sin. Know your role and shut your mouth. We are the body. And when we think about it, as Paul says, our body is made up of all different parts. Some are seen. Our mouth is heard. We can say all sorts of things with our mouth. Read the book of James. He tells us about that. But there's other body parts that, that are such an important role, especially here in the South. Think of your sweat glands. They play an important role. And they're kind of gross. Think of all what your body has to do and the important roles that each of it plays. And without it, I think of a really good friend who was a phenomenal athlete. He broke this tiny little bone in his foot and it shut him down and they could not get it fixed and he couldn't play because of a tiny little bone that is unseen in his foot. All these little parts play such an important role in the body. And so it is in the body of Christ. So it is in the church. We each have a role. We are all different. And it's not just that it's okay to be different. It's that God designed you differently. It was not a mistake. It was not an accident. 
your gifts and talents and abilities, but not just that, your, your experiences, even traumatizing experiences that God allowed you to go through are there to bring glory to his name so that you can help others as this body functions together. God has designed each of us uniquely. And this allows us to serve together. And one of the unique parts about a church, any church, or the universal church, but just even Hope Church by itself is, although we are small, so many people are functioning as the church even when they're apart from each other. Which makes when we come together at services or when uh, we're doing different things in the community, it makes it that much more joyful that now we get to do it together. And we can recognize, especially when we're together, we recognize, oh, I'm terrible at that, but that person's phenomenal at that. I would have never thought to set things up that way, but because of her experience, she's so good at it. And we come together, and even in smaller groups, and we see these different aspects play a role and how that works in discipleship. When we're together, we are discipling each other. It might not be one-on-one. It might be a bigger group, but that is all part of discipleship. When you serve in guest services, when you serve in Hope Kids, all of that is such an important role in discipleship. Guest services has such an awesome opportunity. It might be one of those unseen parts of setup and teardown, but they play such an important role in making sure that people feel loved and welcome when they walk into a service. Hope Kids is one of the most amazing aspects of discipleship. Because they're spending time with these young, formative minds, being able to teach them God's word through songs and stories and doing things with them. It's this exciting aspect of discipleship right in front of them. And there's so many different relationships that are built through our serve teams, through helping out at grocery giveaways, through doing whatever it is that we're doing. In fact, when we're done recording this, we're, the three of us in this room are all going and helping somebody move with other people from the church. And we get to serve together, and it's part of that discipleship, it's part of that relationship building process. But when we take ourselves out of that, when we remove ourselves from being on different serve teams, when we remove ourselves from being involved in other capacities, we are honestly handicapping the body of Christ. We are willingly, it's not that something was broken, it's that we are willingly saying, I'm just going to act like something's broken. And we take ourselves out of the equation. And then my last point and we'll see it here in a second. If you go down to, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. But verse 9 starts off saying, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. And so my final point is this. Discipleship starts with sincere love. We talk about the motivation behind doing what we do. It starts with love. When you see our t-shirts or our kind of our mission statement, love, equip, send. It has to start with love. Love of God allows us to love others. Discipleship that looks like how Jesus disciples starts with and is driven by sincere love. We are not experts in love like Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who is the author of what pure love is, we're not going to do that. So we have to work on it. Loving is something that we have to constantly try to do. We have to practice it. That's the thing about basketball. I coached basketball for a long time. And basketball, nobody walked in the gym and had it all. We had to do this thing called practice. I'm talking about practice. 
practice. It's how you get better in the game. Practice. They had to learn how to dribble and shoot and rebound and all those things and run through plays. And so the same is true of everything that we're about to read in this passage, but especially love. When I see crowds of people, I am normally not filled with compassion on my own self. I normally want to point out all the problems that they have and sometimes tell them about it. But when I'm loving like Jesus loves, I am driven. That compassion comes. When I see the person who's hurting, instead of trying to turn a blind eye, I realize I have to have compassion. It does not come naturally to me, I promise you. And there are several people here who've known me a long time, and they will tell you, that's not what Rob used to do. It's something you have to practice. You get better at it. Then you go back to the drawing board, and you try to figure it out again. We're told constantly that God is love, that we are to love like Jesus loves. Why? Because we're humans and we're terrible at it. We like to pick who we love and try to forget everybody else. We like to come up with reasons why we no longer have to love people. So we go back to God's word and guess what? It's another book all about pointing us to love like Jesus did. He tells us repeatedly because he knows we will fail at it repeatedly. God is all knowing. He knows that this is one of the hardest things for us to do is to love other people. When you study this passage, I want you to circle the one another's that you see. One another, one another. It's not limiting anybody. It's as you do this with one another. That is what it comes down to. So the rest of this chapter that we're going to read through is built off of this love must be sincere. In fact, I was hoping to have time to go through 1 Corinthians 13, but that's for another day. Love must be sincere. If you're wondering what your life looks like when being guided by sincere love, here it is. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Hate, speaking of emotions. Hate, that word that can mean two different things. I've heard love and hate are on the same side of the coin. You honestly can't hate something without loving it first. This is the other kind of hate. This is the kind of hate I feel towards palmetto bugs because I'm from the north and I know they're really cockroaches. I don't care what you call them, they're disgusting and I hate them. And my hate is overwhelming towards them. In fact, one time I opened up a closet door and a palmetto bug ran out. The only difference I can see between palmetto bugs and cockroaches is cockroaches are smart. I'm pretty sure palmetto bugs is just a nice way of saying a drunken cockroach because they act drunk and I'm, I just, I'm convinced that they're just drunk cockroaches. Open up a door on a hardwood floor and a palmetto bug runs at my feet, and without thinking, I drop all of my body weight into a fist that I smash into the palmetto bug and immediately realize that was overkill because my whole hand hurts. Why? I hate palmetto bugs. This is hate. With that type of hate, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This isn't the cling like a, a little kid holding onto a teddy bear. This is a cling like you just fell off a cliff and it happened to grab a tree branch. And if you were to fall off of that tree branch, something bad happens. So you cling to the tree branch. So hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Why? Because your life depends on it. 
Let's keep going. Be devoted to one another in love. Again, that reminder, that sincere love. Honor one another above yourselves, putting other people's interests ahead of yourself. So what does that mean in discipleship? What does that mean in a church setting? A very good friend and a member, we don't really have membership, but Greg Bryant, who has served in all sorts of roles, part of our original team, he would always say to me, when you say no, you say yes for somebody else. When you say no, I'm not going to take part in that, you say yes for somebody else. Because whatever that is, whatever that, uh, that Hope Kids team, whatever that guest services team, the worship team, the preach, whatever that role is, is going to have to happen. And so when you say no, you are saying yes for someone else because it has to be done. When we honor one another above ourselves, it means that we can view serving in a different light. Now, I'm very thankful. This is probably coming across very harshly. I'm getting over a cold and I don't mean it to because I'm so thankful for Hope Church's attitude towards loving and towards serving. We opened up our first children's classroom last week and people uh, were excited to be back in there. The leaders were saying, I'm so glad I can be back in here discipling these kids and I'm so excited to be back. It's been about a, almost a year and a half and uh, it's, it's so nice to be in air conditioning was also one of the things I heard and I was quite jealous because we're still outside. But it's that attitude. We're putting other people's interests ahead of their own. When they're in Hope Kids serving, they know that there might be a parent out there hearing the gospel for their very first time because they were willing to disciple their children and tell their children about the gospel. There's people that are just willing to serve. Why? Because they are honoring other people ahead of themselves. Continue on. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Again, your zeal means your eagerness. You keep that eagerness. And he's talking to people who are just coming to know Christ, who are just understanding what it is to be forgiven, to have their shame and their guilt removed. And that zeal that drives you, keep it. Because Satan wants to pull it away. And then he talks about another emotional response. Fervor. Keeping after. Excited about. Chasing. And keeping that emotional response of excitedness in your zeal to obey him. And then he goes on, be joyful in hope. These are key words. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice? We're talking about practice. Practice hospitality. You might not be good at it, so keep doing it over and over again. Figure out how to get good at it. And the only way that happens is by doing it over and over again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Basically meaning be emotionally supportive of those around you. Don't judge them. Don't tell them what their emotions should be. You are there for them. Know your surroundings. See people like Jesus. More next week on that. But look at these key words. Joyful patient, faithful in prayer, sharing, hospitable, rejoicing and mourning. These are the aspects that we do. Imagine the, the discipleship that is happening with these people who know how to do this, who know how to come along with other people and, and meet needs that they have and they pray for them. They, they're joyful in what they're doing. They're joyful in the hope that they have in Christ.
And then really the rest of this passage is all starts in this line. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. This goes back to Will's message last week when he's talking in Acts, this early church that is starting. They lived differently than the world around them. But he knows that just saying live in harmony isn't enough. So the rest of the passage is explaining how do you live in harmony. And the rest of this passage is also what I call good rules before you post on social media. So here we go. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. When we say I'm too good or I'm not going to do that, it is demonstrating what our identity is really found in. It is found in our social makeup and we are unwilling to socially be with other people. That is pure sin and pride. So do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 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 Not be careful to do what is right in the eyes of your peers. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of people that vote like you. Be careful to do what is right. It's in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy, enemy, keyword, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I guess I'll throw in a last point, and this is my last point. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. In this passage in Romans 12, we have all of these different things that I know I'm not good at. Don't repay somebody evil with evil? That's kind of personal. As so much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone? Most of you never saw my social media account, and I'm glad I got rid of it, because none of you would ever respect me reading this verse. Live at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. Do what is right. These are all very difficult things to live out. But it's how we live in harmony with one another. It is how we demonstrate to the world around us that knowing Christ is different and causes us to live differently. That the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It does not match the world around you. But more importantly, this is how we demonstrate discipleship in our lives. This is what drives us. Sincere love, which doesn't come naturally. And this whole passage is a a cyclical thing. It starts with sincere love, which we don't naturally do. So what do we do? We go back and we look in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, when we realize all he's done for us, all he is doing for us, and all he promises he will continue to do, and God does not break promises, we are able to understand that our life is a living sacrifice for him. And so when he says, go and make disciples, we go and make disciples. We don't come up with excuses. We don't put it off until the sermon series ends. We go and make disciples. Why? In view of God's mercy. The fact that God loved me as a wretched sinner enough to send his son to die for me. In view of that, how does that change my life? 
in view of that and then realizing that everything that I can do even halfway decently is because of the, the gifting and abilities and talents and experience that God has allowed me to have. And so how am I using it to serve him? How am I using those different giftings and abilities and talents and experiences to disciple the people that God in his sovereignty has brought into my life? It should change the way that I disciple. It should change the way that I view the body of Christ and my involvement in it. And as I do those things, I practice what God has told me to do. And I practice loving sincerely. And I meet people and I hear their stories and I get to know them. And I realize that my quick judgments were wrong and I start to understand what sincere love is. And the more that I start to understand sincere love, the more I realize how much God loves me. And then I sit back in view of God's mercy and I start it all over again. So start somewhere. Where are you? Have you joined a serve team at Hope Church? It's a great starting point, but it's just a starting point. Have you decided to do the book study that we're trying to do this summer? We've tried to make it so that everyone can do it, and we've been overwhelmed by the response. So many people are going through gospel-centered discipleship starting this coming week. Have you come out to a grocery giveaway? Have you gone out to any of the events? Have you helped people move? Have you done any of those things? And, and maybe you just can't. Maybe you are physically incapable of doing those things we understand. But God has a unique thing that he has designed you for. And the way that you find out is you start somewhere. Hope Church, I sincerely love you. I am so excited that we get to do this together. I haven't made it. I haven't made it. I need you to come alongside me and encourage me as I hopefully come alongside you and encourage you. We are one body. We need each other. We get to disciple each other, learn from and serve with each other. So that's what I'm leaving you with this week. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to come to your word. And as hard as it is, as many spiritual gut punches as I have felt just reading through this passage and studying this passage, Lord, I know that you have a plan. Lord, I know that you are not finished with me yet. That as long as I am drawing breath, you have a plan for me being here on earth. And as long as anybody watching this is drawing breath, you have a plan for them as well. So I pray that together we continue to seek after you. That we are, are courageous enough to start doing what it is you have asked us to do. Lord, I pray that we start somewhere. That we continue to progress. That we continue to move closer in our relationship with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.